We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Anthony Kim, who is a Corwin Press bestselling author with publications including The New Team Habits, The New School Rules, and the Personalized Learning Playbook. His writing ranges from topics including the future of work, leadership and team motivation, improving the way we work, and innovations in systems-based approaches to organizations and school design. Anthony believes that how we work is the key determinant to the success of any organization. In addition to his writing, he is the founder and chief learning officer of Education Elements, a scholarist learning company. Anthony is a trusted partner to districts and educators nationwide and has been the founder of several companies. Welcome, Anthony. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me, Tanya. I'm excited to be here as well and excited to hear what questions you have for me today. (laughs) I'd love to start at the beginning and hear how you got involved in education. Yeah, you know, it's one of these things that people ask me a lot, especially after doing a talk. And oftentimes, like the first question is, what classroom did you teacher, what subject? And, you know, I I never taught in a classroom and I landed in education by happenstance. Actually, not too far from you, uh, I was actually a consultant for Danza College working on several projects. And this was back in like 1998. The chancellor and the vice chancellor there asked me if I could help them think through a, a few like large projects for the community college. And and I did one and it went pretty well, like project management of it. And they asked me to do another one. And eventually I got to learn a lot about community colleges and higher ed. And one day they asked me if I could build a tool that could track students online in a product called Blackboard. And this was really early. And so being in Silicon Valley, there were plenty of engineers and we 
built the, one of the first web analytics tools for LMS. And that was back in 2000. And, and that's how I first got into education by building tools that gave us data about how students were doing online. So what were you looking for as you were tracking this LMS? Are you looking for like what they're looking at or how they're doing or what was interesting about that data? It was actually just simpler than that. <laughs> a measurement of attendance in an online modality that they couldn't do just by having students come into a building anymore. And through that, we started looking at patterns of engagement and looking at what things students clicked on more and where they spent time. And that gave us some visibility into how engaging the content was. And so originally, it started as this idea of tracking someone's attendance online, but it actually became a measure of engagement. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with ed tech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K-12 curriculum and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com B for a demo. That's IXL.com B-E. Interesting. I'd be curious to see like how engagement has changed as the internet and online learning has evolved. I think of the pandemic shutdown and I had a five-year-old in kindergarten at the time. And I walked in when he was supposed to be online with his teacher, which from the other room, I could hear his teacher talking. Like I knew he was online with her, but I walk in and he's got a YouTube video playing. He's playing a video game and his teacher's talking in the background. Like, And this is all on one screen on an iPad that my five-year-old did. So like, I'd be curious to see from those early clicks and engagement what that looks like now. Honestly, like that's a good question. I, I don't think it's changed that much. As you know, through what you do with the podcast and you know what we see in videos and things like that, the first couple minutes is what you're able to keep people's attention around. And then after that, it's kind of a mixed bag depending on what the content is. It falls apart really quickly. So Rebel Educators, we hope this first couple of minutes has been interesting and you stay with us. <laughs> we stay with us. So a lot of your work now is around organization and school design and the way things are organized for success. So can you talk a little bit kind of a, about a traditional organization method and shifts that you are seeing or helping schools to make? Yeah. So just to step back on that, like, how did I get to that point? So Back in 2010, Ted Mitchell, who was the Undersecretary of Education for a while, but at the time he was running a group called New Schools Venture Fund. And there was a project that I got brought in with Michael Horn to look at all sorts of digital content products in the country. And so we worked with some researchers in Stanford and Michael and Ted to look at a lot of the different implementations of products. You can name all of the products. Some of them still exist today, and many of them still exist today. And what we found is that there was 
a lot of inconsistency around implementation, but a lot of research that went into these products. And so the products were actually designed in optimal conditions. And we were wondering why there was variation on the quality of the outcomes that you see on these products. And a lot of it had to do with the quality of implementation. And by implementation, I don't mean a server that got turned on and people got access to it. I mean, how people learn to use it and how appropriately they used the products and how often they used it. And so that got me thinking about organizational design because, you know, having grown up in San Francisco and in Silicon Valley, we've seen many companies become huge, right? Netflix or Yahoo or Google or Apple in a period of a decade, gigantic companies within the industry. And with the same level of effort that educators put into school systems and the amount of work that we put into school systems, I didn't see that level of innovation happen on a regular basis or at the same rate. And one of the things that I started thinking about is why are we getting different results with the same product in so many different situations? And that led me to this idea that how we work is more important than what we work on, right? Like being able to work well together is essential. And and that also plays out in sports and other things like that. And that led me to writing one of my books, uh, The New School Rules, The Six Vital Practices for Thriving and Responsive Schools. And things like planning for change, how teams collaborate, how you assign roles, how you try things, how you share information, and how you learn as an organization are critical factors in a successful team. Yeah, absolutely. And especially as we're moving into a new era of education, when those are the things that we want to see from our students is how they're collaborating and how they're working together. You know, how can we model that as an organization? Right. And, you know, so often, especially in education, I've noticed A lot is departmental-driven and title-driven, right? And so oftentimes work gets assigned by department and title. And I don't believe that all organizations like in other industries operate that way. Think about the, the movie industry, right? Like what happens if you create a movie is the director might, or executive director might come up with the concept, but the location manager doesn't sit through every single meeting until the production of the meeting. Like once they're done with their thing, They move on to a different project, whereas I've sat in so many meetings in school systems where there's 30, 40, 50 people meeting that are stakeholders of the meeting that sit through every meeting for like three years of a project, and they don't have a role in that. And so I think that the Hollywood model of management is an interesting one to look at because people come and go depending on what is needed in the project when it's needed. And I think that will help us get to a more efficient state of the educated workforce, especially when, you know, we all feel like there's strain on the educated workforce across the country. Yeah. You bring up some good points and it feels like, especially in education, people want to be involved in everything and they want to know what's going on and they want to be a part of it. And if they only come in to do their part and then they leave, then they feel like they've lost connection with the project or they don't know what's going on or they can't you know, right. suddenly they feel disconnected. So I guess part of my question is, how do you help them to overcome that and see that like, they can bring in their area of specialty and help the project to be efficient and effective and successful, but don't need to be a part of the whole thing? 
And I guess the other part of that question is I feel like part of what you're describing is this, like part of what we saw during the pandemic when it felt like public schools were this huge barge that we couldn't move in turn because there were so many pieces and people involved where smaller schools or we saw pods or homeschools or micro schools or smaller independent schools were able to be much more nimble and fluid and kind of the changes that you're seeing and organizationally because of that. That was a lot of questions at once. I'm sorry about that. That (laughs) Um, I'll try to tackle the first part, which is just how do you get people comfortable with operating in some of the unknown that exists in a project? And you're right. I find that educators in general, even, you know, when you think about teachers, even when they think about curriculum adoption or lesson planning, they need to know every single thing before tackling it. Right. And especially, you know, in the software world, there's agile development, there's design thinking, there's things that people have promoted and try to bring into education. But it's been hard because agile means a lot of repetitions and design thinking means that you brainstorm and you try things that you're going to make a lot of mistakes around. And then you learn. And usually when we start introducing these topics, the first thing a teacher might say is, well, you know, we, we can't take that risk, right? Or the stakes are so high with the kids and all that. And my initial response is, well, right now we're not getting the results we want. So continuing to do the same things actually might produce even worse results. And, and I think that what we saw during the pandemic are the districts that were really successful were the ones that experimented with online learning early. And the condition became like that skill was really needed when the pandemic hit. And now they're able to actually do true blended learning in a way that students actually want to have that education experience. You know, another thing I've heard even from some of the educators is students feel more comfortable in an AI response with tutoring than an actual in-person tutor because they feel like they're getting judged in, in some ways and AI doesn't necessarily judge you. And so there's a lot of different interactions and emotions that go into how people interact with feedback and tutoring and instruction and learning that often you're trying to come out of the learning pit and you're in a place of vulnerability to before you move into a place of expertise. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that take on AI before that students were feeling like it was non-judgmental and so therefore it was easier to use or a preferred methodology. And I see the positives of that. And it also makes me really afraid because it's one of the things we need to learn as we grow up, especially in middle school and in high school, when we start to have more of that awareness of a social construct and the people around us is how do we deal with feedback and how do we have more difficult conversations? And how do we come to a point where we understand that, yeah, the people around us might have thoughts about us, but that doesn't necessarily matter as long as we know that we're doing the right thing. So this is moving into more of like ethics and empathy around AI. But I'm curious if you've seen more of that or if you have thoughts around the use of AI and its interjecture into, I guess, personal relationships. Yeah, I know you know I I wrote a little bit about it, but it goes back to the early days of online learning. I remember when people were like, online learning isn't going to be as good as in person. And I think there are two different things that we're really comparing. Like what you can learn online is completely different than what you can learn in person, but you might need both. 
because there's certain technologies that allow us to do that. I also remember a time where searching on the internet was a bad thing when you were trying to write a paper. And <laughs> now it's pretty acceptable, right? And so there's definitely an evolution. And especially in the early days of a technology like a Wikipedia, for example, there's a lot of apprehension about using those kinds of tools. And I think AI is at that place right now where it can go either way. Similar to like social media or like Twitter, right? Like there was a time where, you know, people utilized Twitter a lot as a source of information. And now it's become like a source of opinion, right? Like it's just a lot of opinionated comments and stuff, and it can be destructive in different ways. And so I think there's got to be care taken with AI because it can go a lot of different ways. And if you try some of the tools around ChatGPT, it's scary how smart it is right now and, and how much it could do. And it's only going to get better and better faster the more people use it. And so to me, like like saying we can avoid AI is like saying you could avoid the internet. You could, but it's going to isolate you in a world where you don't have access to good information. Yeah, I don't think we can avoid it. And as an adopter of ChatGPT, I've watched how quickly it's evolved even over the last two months. Mm -hmm. And I use it for everything. So I'm certainly not one to, (laughs) to downplay AI. Like my daughter came to me yesterday. She was doing a project for school. I have a sixth grader. And there was something they needed to alphabetize. And she found an alphabetizer online. And she's like, oh, I found this alphabetizer. I can just put things in there. It'll alphabetize it for me. And and it was blocked by her school. So she can use ChatGPT in her school, but they're still figuring out like what AI to use and not use. And and that one was blocked. I said, well, I guess your teacher wants you to learn how to alphabetize things. Right. You know the right. alphabet. You can do this. <laughs> I mean, remember when there was a time where a lot of websites were blocked on school internet, right? Just Mm -hmm. to do basic search. So what do you see as organizational shifts that are necessary if we're really going to see large-scale change in how schools operate? Again, I just go back to schools are learning organizations. In essence, like if you're trying to create a learning environment for students, If your operating system for a school isn't a learning environment, then there's a mismatch, right? Like functionally, you're not operating in a way that allows students to learn, nor adults. So, you know, I think a big motto that we've had in our organization is schools grow when people grow. And all that means is that when your teachers, your administrators, your parents are in a mode of learning then the students will be incredibly successful because you have the systems and the behaviors in place that allow for that to happen, which includes being able to make mistakes and learn from them, which includes sharing information so that people have the information to make better decisions, which includes being able to collaborate with other folks, being able to adjust for different changing conditions. And not feeling like you need to go back to the old way of doing things, like kind of evolving your practices and your skills forward. I think those are all things that are necessary. And if we don't believe that schools should be a learning organization, then we're creating systems that block learning. The question becomes, how do we create systems that support learning and are really designed for everyone to learn, not just students? Right. And there's always been that separation, like someone's supposed to be the expert and then someone's the learner. and 
I don't think that in today's world, because of technologies like AI, like everybody's kind of a learner. Like right now, the fact that you've been learning about AI, you've gone through a several steps and repetitions that allow you to continue to evolve your thinking about it. But a lot of people that are resistant to that change aren't learning. And so we kind of fall back onto habits of change, right? And, you know, James Clear wrote a great book called Atomic Habits, which talks about like 1% change. Uh, Charles Duhigg wrote about the power of habits. And it's like, how do you build the habit of actually learning 1% every day? How do you learn just one thing? And just kind of as a tangential, I'm just learning how to play golf, but there's a lot of moving parts to playing golf, a lot, right? And every little tweak makes a huge difference, not only in the swing, but there's you know wind conditions, grass conditions, all sorts of things, emotions. And there's a lot of things that go into it. And the only way you could do that is not by trying to capture all of those things at the same time. You have to take 1% improvements in one thing and keep on practicing it until like you've mastered that piece and then you move on to the next. And so there's a way to do that. And you have to be okay with screwing it up sometimes too. And I think when we see the evolution of some of the tech companies in Silicon Valley, what they've done really well is one, people that worked at PayPal, like, you know, what they call the PayPal mafia, they're all off starting multi-billion dollar companies, right? Like Reed Hoffman started LinkedIn, like Elon Musk, Twitter, all Square, all of these guys went off. And even the semiconductor industry was started by a group of people that worked at Fairchild and then Intel was formed and all of these other things, transferring knowledge really well to evolve to the next stage of growth. Remember when we were doing Common Core and everybody had to like reinvent the standards over and over again in every state. And then at each district, they had to reinvent the standards. And so like, there's a lot of reinvention instead of evolution happening in the education system that I think that we need to like break that habit a little bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, talking about making mistakes and being nimble. And as you're talking through all of the companies and all of the people who have broken off and started their own thing, and I'm picturing what that could look like in education. And I feel like that's something that we're seeing happen, at least in some of the independent schools and in micro schools and in things that have started more recently in the last four or five years. And I feel like we're still not seeing as much of that from the public schools yet. And there, there are glimpses here and there, and there are teachers doing really innovative things, and there are school districts doing really innovative things. But then there's still this whole kind of group that's not, for lack of a better word. And so how do we get all of that momentum and that ability to be forward thinking or to move fast and break things or to do good? <laughs> to use some of the like tech company mottos in schools and get them to really embrace whether it's a design thinking and the ability to make mistakes or an agile development and creating different iterations till we get it right and step away from the things that aren't working and not be afraid of change, but move into that unknown. It's a tough one, right? And I think that the pattern that I've seen is a lot of people get into education with this rosy picture of what it might look like in the classroom, all the kids listening to you and enjoying learning and you get into the classroom and it's tough. And over time, you like what I've seen teachers try to do is make change and it gets beaten away at, out of them, right? For what, a variety of different reasons, right? It could be leadership, it could be policies, it could be 
new initiatives. It could be programs. It could be not being successful. Like there's a lot of things that go into that. And what happens is as those things get beaten out of you, you kind of just lose the energy to do that. And I think a lot of folks lost inspiration. And so the reason when you know someone like you goes off and starts a new school is you might still have that energy and inspiration to go off and start a school. And then you're bringing people along and those people feel inspired again to do something different. And I, I think that COVID in some ways inspired a lot of people, but also drained a lot of people in terms of just the way the things operated. And so we need to shift back to some level of inspiration for our education. And I'm not sure the best way to do that because it's so unique to the conditions of the environment of every school in the country. Yeah. And rebel educators, we're here for you. <laughs> we hear you. We know that you are making change in your classrooms every day and there is more than one of you. And we are out there. and We are doing our best work as well. One of the questions I love to ask everyone, because as you mentioned, I run a school, I run an elementary school, and I love to hear what people remember from their elementary school years. So if you can think back and share a story of a time that you remember from when you were in elementary school. Yeah. Thanks for asking this, because uh, I would say that I don't remember any tests or any homework assignments. I remember the human interactions I've had with teachers. And uh, disasters that I've experienced being a, a student, right? And so <laughs> the story I would say is I was a pretty good student and I got pulled out of class a lot to do extra projects, like, you know, those bulletin boards and things like that. And, um, you know, when you get pulled out of the classroom to do something fun, as opposed to going to detention, like you feel special. And so I remember that fondly. And what happens is like you get built up to feeling really special. So one day my teacher asked me to run for a student body office, one of the offices and like, great, you know, I prepared and then I campaigned and then we had to do the final speeches in front of everybody. And I, I literally froze, like the words would not come out of my mouth and I was super embarrassed, but it's one of those things that stuck with me. And ever since then, I, I really did want to work on public speaking. And it was something that stuck with me that I needed to improve. But also, it also stuck with me that the teachers were really caring after that and made me feel okay, right? And gave me confidence that I could get better at that. And it wasn't that big of a deal. It, should, you know, it shouldn't be something that I should be embarrassed about. And I think that if I had a different reaction, I probably wouldn't be doing keynotes or writing books or, or being on a podcast, like because I would have lost that confidence. And that just goes back to the sharing we had about like being okay with making mistakes so that people can continue to evolve and learn. What a great story. Yeah. So much of our time is around how we make others feel. You know, we don't remember how we learned to read. I don't remember how I learned basic math facts, although I do remember that I never passed my division 100 question time test. <laughs> I still failed. I, I think I've done okay in the world. Yeah. But yeah, we remember those moments from our teachers and the times when they really built us up and gave us confidence. Right. And those are memories that stay with somebody like me, like even now at I'm 53, like that's been a long time, right? Like 45 years that stayed with me. And I think for the rebel educators, I think the interactions that you have with your students, it'll stay with them for decades. 
And it will make a huge difference because when things start to fall apart or they start questioning things in their heads, like for me, about like every time I prepare for a speaking engagement, that story kind of plays back in my head, right? And it plays back in different ways. And so it's stuck with me for that long and it's played back multiple hundreds of times for me. Yeah. And that moment of what happens if this happens again? What if I get on stage and I can't say anything? And and then knowing that those teachers, like those words are then in your ears of believing in you and knowing that you can and visualizing the positive outcome. Yeah. Absolutely. How can people get in touch with you? The easiest way is on LinkedIn. I respond to all of the LinkedIn messages and I'm also available to Surprisingly, a lot of educators uh, reached out to me to just talk about like career options in the education space. And I'm happy to do that with folks as well, just to see you know what's out there and hear about what it's like to work in ed tech or what it's like to work as a consultant for schools or what opportunities there are in other forms like microschooling and things. Uh, very open to helping and providing guidance to folks that want to do something beyond what they're doing today. Excellent. Thank you so much for offering that. And thank you for your time today, Anthony. Thanks. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. And thanks for inviting me. And uh, I look forward to hearing from all your listeners in terms of you know any kind of feedback they have or any questions they might have going forward. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.